Hello, and welcome to the DH Podcast. I'm Rachel Rochester. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce two very special guests who are here to speak with us about the digital humanities as a tool for social justice, the false perception of neutrality for digital tools, and how we can support faculty, including non-tenure track faculty, in their DH work. Laura Sanders currently teaches as an adjunct for community colleges in Oregon and California. She also currently serves as Teaching Learning Center Coordinator, Online English Faculty Mentor, and Community-Based Learning Coordinator for Portland Community College. Laura has taught composition and rhetoric at private research inst institutions, small liberal arts colleges, state universities, and community colleges. In recent years, she has served as co-editor of an accreditation self-study, interim grants officer, and academic department assessment coach. Combining her passions for professional development and social justice, she continues to seek the sweet spot between digital humanities and online community-based learning. Kathy Inman Behrens is Assistant Professor of Book Publishing and Digital Humanities in Portland State University's English Department. Kathy adjuncted for three years between full-time jobs and aims to open avenues of access for adjuncts and other faculty at non-elite institutions to practice digital humanities. As an adjunct, Kathy was appointed the Fulbright Scholar of Digital Culture to Norway 2014 to 2015. In addition to her work in DH, electronic literature and video games, Kathy specializes in digital pedagogy. She authored the forthcoming Sharing Precarity, Adjuncts, Global DH, and Care for the Debates in Digital Humanities 2017 collection from the University of Minnesota Press, and curated the keyword interface for digital pedagogy in the humanities, MLA's first open access publication. Kathy lectures, delivers workshops, and consults about digital pedagogy and online learning. So please join me in welcoming Laura and Kathy. Yay! Hello, it's wonderful to be here. <laughs> so I guess to get started, I first met you two when you were presenting at MLA this year. I was hoping that you might describe your presentation a little bit for our listeners who weren't able to be there. So for me, it was a, it was a lightning talk, <laughs> so it was short and sweet, um, but I tried to give a lot of context about what it's like to be a community college instructor and an adjunct instructor trying to do, do digital humanities at an institution that isn't necessarily so gung-ho about it from the start. Uh, so I talked about the fact that I'm one 1,100 adjuncts at Portland Community College. We teach 76% of the classes. Um, we're the largest institution of higher in the state of Oregon, and we serve a geographic area the size of Rhode Island, and yet there's no, you know, DH centers, DH faculty, DH classes, um, and it takes a lot of work just to get people to listen sometimes. And it's that, that it needs to be connected to something in the institutional values before they're going to just go for it. They're not going to go for digital humanities for its own sake. Um, and so I, I talked about how working with Kathy, uh, and she was an adjunct, and it gave me all this insight. Uh, and she kept trying it, and I thought, I'm not so sure. But when she got the Fulbright, I thought I needed to look into this a little further. And I was given the opportunity. I was in Eugene uh, in the summer of 2015. And McRail from the Lane Community uh, College Department of English set up a NEH Institute for Digital Humanities at community colleges. And I knew that in order to um, make this work for my institution, I was going to have to tap into pre-existing resources and, and values that we share throughout the district. Uh, and so what I was able to do, the thing that made the most sense for me is to focus on equity and inclusion and the way that DH could fit in that 
world. And so for me, what that meant was finding uh, a service project to be done online, because mostly I'm teaching online classes these days. And I was able to find uh, the crowdsourcing digital archives. There are a lot of institutions that are trying to digitize their collections and they're using volunteers to do that. And um, it's wonderful because my students just have to give an email and it's set up for volunteers and I don't have to build any infrastructure at all. They just, you know, I give them some links, I explain what's going on there. Uh, and what they're able to do is go in and a lot of times tag photos, caption videos, or uh, key in text that's probably in a scanned like PDF. Um, and once that happens and all these materials are digitized, um, they do a lot of things, a lot of services. One is that it's made available for the public because the volunteers who are doing the work, you know, aren't being paid. It's not private information. Uh, two, scholars can go in. It's much easier to search for specific terms or patterns when something's not in a PDF. Um, and then lastly, it really, um, you can go in and take those materials and tag them in certain ways that make them accessible for people who are using screen readers or other forms of adaptive technology. So it's definitely a service. It's definitely DH. Um, it's online. And so I knew that was sort of the path uh, for me and my students. And to, the, the ultimate goal for me is to have my students see themselves as part of a scholarly enterprise um, and to sort of open the door for them to work with digital tools and be a part of these conversations. Because I think down the road, that's the promise of DH and social justice. And that is definitely something that a community college can become invested in. And Rachel, just kind of picking up on some of the threads that Laura started to weave for us, um, there's been some nervousness in um, DH scholarship about what constitutes digital humanities and whether uh, tagging items in PDFs for the New York Public Library would be sufficiently rigorous to count as DH. Um, you know, all of us are interested in a big tent digital humanities, but there's also some interest in defending the technologic um, capacity, the skill building capacity uh, of digital humanities. And so to think a little bit about what DH means in non-privileged environments means to think about what Rupsi Rassam calls micro DH. Um, so not quite minimal computing, um, which is the ADHO global DH uh, movement started by Gentry Sayers and Rupsi Rassam and uh, Alex Gill, which involves Raspberry Pi sets and a lot of hands-on manufacturing of very cheap, like $25 uh, com computing systems running um, Linux. But instead to think about how do um, people with very little access um, using maybe only their cell phones, because that's the only access to computation that they have, how do those people engage in digital humanities critical thinking? And I think that the kind of work that Laura's doing with her students and that I did with my students in the three years when I was adjuncting is to ask them to think about um, how corporate ownership of tools like Google uh, and uh, like I, my students built things with uh, Google Maps uh, and using Facebook and Twitter and all those different tools. How, how does the corporate ownership change what counts as uh, a private exchange? Um, we, uh, you know, we definitely want to offer our students the, um, the privacy of the classroom and the freedom to articulate 
work to each other that's risk taking in the private I would even say hallowed um, space of the, of the classroom mm-hmm. but if you're running a class in Twitter um, that's not really possible I certainly ran many classes in Google Hangouts right um, but the kind of uh, critical thinking that students become empowered to do about how they articulate their own identities using these tools and how they participate in the kind of collaborative social justice works that Laura's talking about, that does strike me as very much uh, within the DH spectrum. Um, so if we do think about a spectrum, I mean, a lot of the work started with um, our one institutions, you know, research-oriented institutions. But now we need to think about situating DH work on a continuum, moving from our ones all the way through to um, fairly poorly funded state institutions like uh, Portland State University and Clackamas Community College and Portland Community College and other places. Portland State is the most diverse um, uh, Oregon university. Uh, We get about 50% of our students from Portland Community College, so Laura's students become my students. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we think about the kinds of training that Laura and other foot soldiers um, are doing in DH, uh, it really is probably the, what I think is some of the most important DH work around. Yeah. Okay. Well, so it sounds like you're having to really go to, to great uh, lengths to try to make sure that you have access to DH tools in the classroom and that you can provide your students with that kind of access, um, particularly in adjunct contexts. And so I'm wondering, are there any changes that need to happen at an institutional level to ensure that adjunct and other insecure faculty members have the support to engage in DH? You know, if you had your druthers, how would you druther these institutions, make those changes, and and try to support DH on campuses like yours? Yeah, I mean, well, I would say that there's lots of goodwill all around. And in environments of very scarce resources, what we're trying to think about is how things and initiatives can do double duty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece called, if you want to save the humanities, pay adjuncts to learn digital tools. Mm-hmm. And I really actually think that investing in the people like Laura, like other adjuncts is probably the best investment that universities can make. Um, of course, that also would suggest longer-term relationships with their faculty than the kind of piecemeal modular arrangements that um, is the, the, the hallmark of adjunct work. Uh, but I really do think that it isn't about tools or even um, IT departments, although God bless the wonderful people <laughs> that I'm always talking with, asking them to install new things like FileZilla, Python, Anaconda. I'm always asking them to install things on my lab computers. But I mean, I actually have a lab, uh, lab space at Portland State, which I never, ever had when I was adjuncting. And having access to actual designated physical space has meant that some of my most nervous learners, learners who don't know how to to do some of these tools can benefit not only from my instruction, but from the instruction of other learners in the class. And I think as we go forward thinking about the value of residential learning um, rather than entirely online, Mm -hmm. it's about building that kind of capacity for uh, individual faculty to guide students in mentoring each other, even as faculty also mentor students. Kathy, I was really compelled by your idea of of sort of the corporate interference in some of these digital tools that we're, we're talking about and digital archives and artifacts. So mm-hmm. how do you guide students in that aspect of DH? You know, what are some of the things that you say to them to have them understand how those corporate interests affect neutrality of digital tools? 
Um, I have tons to say that about that, but I know Laura does too. So, <laughs> yeah. um, well, I mean, one thing that worked particularly well, I worked with a librarian, I was teaching a, a developmental reading class, college reading, and she gave a lesson on um, how Google searches work. And, you know, our students go into that situation thinking it's neutral. They put the term in the box, you know, they get the truth back. Um, and we had, I had woven this in with, we had done The Danger of a Single Story, the TED Talk by mm -hmm. Shimamanda and Goche Adichie, which is wonderful. We had looked at map distortions. We had read other articles about travel writers in Africa and sort of the cliched. So I thought I had really hit perspective. I thought that I had really gotten it. But we went into, they have to do an information technology component in that class. And I worked with the librarian and she had a lesson where they chose a country from Africa, put it in the Google box, right? Looked at what came up, right? And often, as we might expect, it's going to be famine, war, maybe sports. Then we used the search terms so they would look only at websites that were originating in the countries themselves. So they were looking at the stories people tell about themselves, not the stories that other people. Well, right away, it's, you know, organic health food and luxury hotels. One of my students found um, that in Madagascar, reality TV is very popular. Um, and it, it sort of blew their mind. It was this very, very simple Piece, but we were trying to get these students to understand that work with the librarian, the search terms matter, these things aren't neutral. How you ask the question is going to shape the way you get your results. Um, and that was a case where I thought it just it really fit with the content that we were um, trying to reach and it hit these deeper skill outcomes. Um, and so again, that's, you know, whatever we're calling this, micro DA side of things, but um, it was, I really felt like I had done some something good and the technology hit that lesson home in a way that the other methods had not. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like um, having a tool that you use frequently defamiliarized and just to show that it that Google might have its own particular interests in reaffirming your biases or your ways of looking at things. So I always teach um, Eli Pariser's The Filter Bubble, which only became more relevant, which is a, a 2012, I think, uh, TED Talk. Um, but it only became more relevant around the 2016 election. So if you can imagine... Students primed by Laura's critical thinking in about how the Google interface works and what some of its, its interests might be, for those students to be able to walk into a DH class at a university level and do work, I mean, uh, some of my students worked with buoyant tools to visualize um, different pieces of rhetoric coming out of the 2016 election. And a student of mine also subsequently, because he um, did some really amazing work uh, around Donald Trump's RNC speech, um, and then he subsequently visualized um, Trump's inaugural speech and Adolf Hitler's uh, 1933 speech, which um, asked the German Senate effectively to authorize him. And that speech found an incredible correlation between the same kinds of words that Hitler was using and Donald Trump was using. So that kind of capacity um, is augmented if students are getting at the community college level the kind of critical DH critical thinking that adjuncts like Laura are imparting. That might transition pretty well into how DH can be a tool for social justice. Um, you know, certainly I think taking emotional interpretations of things like speeches and setting them aside so that you can actually like analyze the data in a way that buoyant tools might allow you to um, might yeah. be one way that you might be able to, to begin to sort of use DH as a tool to help you see things differently. 
Yes, I have very strong feelings about this one. Uh, I came to DH really uh, through my community-based learning. I'm the faculty coordinator, uh, and I help faculty design assignments. Um, the, the sort of the theory behind community-based learning is that we learn through experience and reflection upon that experience, rather than you know the traditional lecture cram for midterms, move on. Uh, and I often tell people when I begin my uh, my talk on community-based learning is how many, if we looked at your college transcript, you know, how many of those classes would you remember? If I gave you, you know, that final exam you got an A on, what would you remember that? Uh, most people, you know, don't feel terribly confident in that. Whereas if we think about an experience we've had, um, and this can be job or travel or a bad breakup or anything, and think, think about what we learned, um, but we only learned it upon reflection, um, those are, tend to be the lessons that stick. So community-based learning is focused on doing a service for others in a way that deepens the understanding of the academic outcomes. And the dream for the teachers using this method is that you have the student reflect back on what they did in terms of their service and connect it back more deeply to the academic outcomes. Therefore, the academic outcomes are going to stick. And what I kept seeing in DH was so much overlap in terms of creating those experiences um, that would invite that type of reflection. So students would leave with this deeper understanding of how knowledge is produced, um, how we can um, access information differently, you know, visually or just using the different tools. Um, I also was particularly fond of the DH fail harder model, uh, motto, mm -hmm. uh, because that is something community-based learning. These are both models where the instructor has to give up a lot of power and has to give up sort of being the center of the class in a lot of ways and to really frame things appropriately for the students and then let them go out and have their experiences, you know, troubleshoot as necessary, but you're really letting them have that experience that you've designed so that this information and these lessons will stick around a lot longer. So um, I think that was my path. And then just building on what Laura is suggesting, I think that if we look to models of decentralization. Well, it's great to look to feminism as one place of origin where people have been thinking about decentralizing authority um, and doing so in technologic environments for about 30 years. Um, cyber feminists um, have been articulating um, models of what um, Elizabeth Loesch and others in the DH, uh, D D DH 2016 volume call a messy uh, pedagogy. The feminist collective Femtech Net um, talks a lot about um, how a more design thinking approach that centers the DH, or how about this, decenters the DH origin story from Father Busa and uh, text visualization and text encoding to something that is also including um, video and um, storytelling and the sorts of um, computational storytelling of electronic literature and even video games. If we start broadening that origin of digital humanities to stretch back along a path um, also to mid-20th century, but centered on design and centered on feminism, then you see that there are a lot of feminist filmmakers, um, Tara McPherson has been writing about this, um, that inspired what we now are also thinking of as uh, kind of a, um, uh, a non-linear approach to storytelling per se. So if you think about the Vectors um, collection of essays run out of USC and built on the Scalar um, uh, platform. Uh, that would be one example of 
powerfully decentered, social justice oriented scholarship. So, Laura, looking at your sample community college DH assignment, uh, where does evidence come from? Digital archive project. You ask students to think a lot about free versus paid work, which I think intersects really nicely with these issues of social justice. Um, this seems like such an important question in DH and one that isn't discussed enough. What do your students generally come up with? Do you think there's a way to shift the paradigm so that unpaid DH work come, becomes more valued within academia? Maybe come paid DH work? Uh, one can dream. Um, so I actually had those particular questions in there because I was teaching the class that I was linking the archival work was a professional writing class. Um, and so we were thinking about different forms of professional writing and how the pieces come together. And I felt like I needed to address that to really, again, deepen the lessons of that particular course and that outcome. Um, and so I put it in there as my hippie agenda, right? Because I wanted them to say, oh, it's not as valid. You know, people don't pay for it because um, we don't value it. And we don't, you know, we only value things that are you know, more quantifiable or, or money making ventures. But instead, I got a lot of students who reflected on how valuable the experience was and how a few people said I would have paid more attention if I had gotten paid for it. But other students mm -hmm. said, I, no way, I would have been, this, is, this way you get people who love what they're doing and you get people who are really motivated and there's so many things that are more important in life than just, you know, uh, checking into your job. And, and basically, I actually had a lot of students say, well, I don't expect my job to be terribly satisfying mm. and it's good for people to have access to intellectual pursuits and feeling part of something bigger than themselves outside of that. Mm. Um, I have a number of students who will tell like, oh, my mom loves genealogy. My dad was uh, in the Navy and I sent him this project on the ship logs. Or I have a lot of students. I have some who cry when it's like, I'm watching these videos in the, in the jungles of Africa and I'm crying because I'm coding <laughs> these things. Um, and so, again, I think it's really important for students to feel they're part of that scholarly enterprise and their answer. And the, the one that was really smart was, well, if this information was um, uh, paid work, uh, then it would take a lot longer to be developed and we probably wouldn't have access to it. Hmm. And so I, they're, really, they're really bringing sophistication to that question that I had not anticipated. Um, and to the point where they see the DH as like this pure, beautiful work done for love as opposed to something sullied with actually uh, <laughs> being connected to a paycheck. Um, so it's very interesting because that was not the, uh, that was not my intention. Um, but the other thing uh, in terms of social justice and paid work is I do want them to be inspired to think about creating their own archives that tell their own stories. And I want my students to be able to challenge the dominant culture portrayal. Um, we know that 42% of college students are attending a community college, and 46% of every student who's getting a bachelor's degree took at least one class at a community college. And yet my students are almost never represented as, quote unquote, real college students. Um, and the more that they have access to these tools and understand how these things are produced, um, the more I see DH as uh, giving a voice to these communities that um, have been kept out by gatekeepers and, you know, other authorities with their own agendas. So that, that is a, another part of the hope for me um, with DH. And then I, I would add to that that um, 
one thing that happens when we do these one-off DH projects, like small archives, personally built archives, or classroom projects, I certainly have a number of um, classroom projects that are still accessible on the open web, but are unsupported and don't represent a current state of being uh, for the knowledge that they represent. They're like markers of time. Amy Earhart has written about this in her new book, Traces of the Old Uses of the New, and, and she's gone back to excavate some of these passion projects that were really part of the early web but died out when they were not supported institutionally. So this, this question about preservation and access and what endures is really at the, the center of DH, I believe, in terms of what, how do we um, value the kinds of stories that our students tell and how do we make them accessible in an ongoing way? One idea might be to think, well, look, print um, enabled certain concepts of archiving. Uh, and maybe the idea is not to save every single thing, but to curate and to say, of the many, many things my students produced, here are a few that I think need to live on and need to be maintained uh, just because they tell a story of a particular moment in time. Um, another thing that we can think about is the transformation of knowledge um, from open access to closed access. So Elsevier has patented peer review, if you can believe it. Uh, it took three tries, but they finally got it through the U.S. Patent Office. Um, and so this, this thing that's at the core of academic values, which is we review each other's work because we care about the work and we want to produce the best scholarship, is actually a patented process that Elsevier is trying to uh, create as proprietary. Um, I would also say that a site like academia.edu, which has that .edu suffix, I don't know how they got it, but they are definitely for profit. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are places like the MLA Commons and other humanities-based commons that are trying to provide truly open access um, uh, scholarship. Uh, but we are living at a time when the promise of the open web um, is now um, possibly moving towards more subscription-based access, which would close out access to a lot of these open things that our students are building. And uh, and that also strikes me as something related to what we might call the adjunctification of the professoriate. One of the things that I find really interesting right now in conversations about, about open access is, you know, helping our students understand what is a credible source and what is not a credible source. Um, and I find that a lot of my students think that things that you pay for are more credible sources, um, particularly wow. in this era where you can you can get an EDU website if you just request one. I mean, I know when I was creating my personal website on Squarespace, that was one of my options was that I could be a .edu no if I wanted to. I know that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm wondering with open access, do you have any suggestions for helping students understand sort of what is going to be a credible source and what is not? Actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to take it in a slightly different direction and then maybe circle back to that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I always have my students learn how to build an HTML and CSS to actually hand code a site and to buy a domain 
or even just to use the domain that we have at Portland State. But if they want to build something bigger, I teach them how to, we always, I always send them to Reclaim Hosting, which is coming out of the University of Mary Washington's Domain of One's Own project. In other words, I think that the kinds of real digital literacy, which is to say not having to set up your web identity through Squarespace or WordPress.com or, or any other service that sells these very beautiful templates, and also what they're really selling is server access. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I really, I mean, many of my students are, um, I think many of us, for under, understandable reasons, are really seduced by the beauty of a square space look. But it turns out to be extremely expensive, like about $120 a year, um, you know, for, for a kind of hosting that can be easily replicated on one's own for much less. Uh, so really, for me, it's, it's about teaching students to have the confidence to build something on their own and to understand the basics of the idea that a domain points to actual server space that you are renting, right? Mm. And that you have to renew your domain every year. And I mean, basic basic things about online existence. I mean, Laurie Emerson talks about uh, this concept in the second chapter of her book, Reading, Writing Interfaces. Uh, and she calls these environments frictionless. And in fact, what we need is more friction. <laughs> we need people to be able to understand um, how we create um, an online identity outside the provenance of social media platforms or Google. Um, um, I think um, uh, all librarians and English teachers everywhere are grappling with the problem of credible sources, um, considering all that's going on. And it's funny that Kathy mentioned the filter bubbles because that was part of a presentation uh, I'm planning with the librarian as well. Um, we talked about, I'm trying to think about that curriculum. I mean, I think it's always been an issue, but I find myself doing things like having my students identify bad sources for their, what are some examples of some less credible sources that you shouldn't use? And they have to present them to me and explain why. Um, so I, and then I always use my archival work to show them, I said, do you think any differently about what is in an academic journal versus what is in a popular source? based on the work you just did that is a form oh, of research. Mm-hmm. And so they can start to understand how much research went into those academic sources, that there's still human interpretation involved, but it's rooted in a lot of data as opposed to um, something else. I also have my students compare popular and academic sources on similar topics. So they really understand the academic sources as, uh, as a genre. Uh, and then we talk about why you don't always want to be reading those really heavy-hitting academic, right. you know, that there's a place for all of it. And because I'm fortunate enough to teach rhetoric and composition, it's very much uh, part of the conversation. Um, I actually also have students evaluate the rhetoric of what I call a false authority. When there's like a website, mm-hmm. there's a wonderful woman who does a pet psychic service, so she'll charge you like $300 <laughs> an hour to do a phone consultation with your pet. Uh, and it's a very convincing site. And so we, we take nice. those down and we break them apart according to rhetoric on why would this be convincing to certain people. But the, but the one um, starting point for that assignment is they have to pick something they don't believe in. Otherwise, they do tend to get sucked in. So uh, you have to, you, even when you're trying to teach them that. So those are just sort of old school composition yeah. tricks, but uh, they're still working for me. And I would also add that one of the things, I think Wikipedia is a great starting point a lot of times, but it is a platform where um, 
things have to be, uh, I mean, it, it, it models peer review, but it isn't exactly peer review mm -hmm. because not everybody who is speaking actually is disinterested, right? Or, or right. It has a wide range of um, expertise on the subject. So think about Wikipedia as a place that's a great place to start, but it is built on the model of somebody else having to authorize you to speak. And that's an interesting aspect of Wikipedia. I was going to say, and more on Wikipedia, um, Rupika Rizam, she, she talks about, you know, knowledge is a product of colonialism. And the Wikipedia, the fact that you're verifying all the sources and you're using the sources that have already been verified in past generations, in some ways you're just sort of ossifying the same privileged circles uh, that you, if someone didn't think that you were worthy of study 50 years ago and so they didn't publish about you, does that mean your way of knowing isn't valid? Um, and she's talked a lot about um, indigenous cultures who are digitizing their own culture in different ways. And, um, and what I would love is that, you know, the work that my students do, then that becomes a source that someone can point to from mm -hmm. Wikipedia, right? And this is how the door gets open because um, although the verifiable sources sound so great and neutral in theory, uh, we know there's a long history with that and the gatekeepers haven't, you know, there's a lot of luck involved and a lot of privilege involved. And I'm really excited about the opportunities that DH gives for underserved communities to have a voice. Right. It's this really interesting, like, changing landscape, you know, where suddenly digital tools certainly can open up a more egalitarian space for people to share their own narratives, but it also can allow people to put uncredible information on the internet. And now when so many DH platforms are not peer reviewed, it's a new landscape to try to teach people how to analyze and assess, you know, sources. I would also say that one of the challenges is the incredible rate of change. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to get data to slow down. <laughs> and, um, and our skills as close readers um, have always been to have a fairly static text that then we can return our attention to, to analyze the operations of the text. Uh, but when my students were trying to like several, several of them were quite fired up about um, the 2016 U.S. presidential election and were trying to visualize post-election conversations in Twitter. And they, it, they were just over, they ended up hand-coding stuff. Like, like by that I mean hand-classifying. Like they, they would cull information off of a hashtag and then uh, use Storify and then to, to save it and then try to class it according to certain sentiment parameters. Um, that obviously is an act of close reading in um, an environment that, de that demands hyper-reading. Now, we hadn't, if we had thought ahead, but it's hard to think ahead when something is emergent, like the way that the U.S. 2016 election went, mm -hmm. um, if we had thought ahead, we could have built, we could have started capturing that data as it was flowing. Um, but I would say that some of the important social justice work might be um, figuring out that something is emergent and then trying to capture it or represent it. Again, it may not be the habits that we have as close readers, gathering everything and then assessing operations based on that, but curating. Um, and, you know, uh, Stephen Ramsey talks in the hermeneutics of screwing around about uh, the serendipity of going to a library and physically being um, 
confronted by or, or enabled by um, the possibilities of a, of a bookshelf. Um, and that in an online environment, we're often more search driven and we get the things that we ask for. And previously in this podcast, we've talked about how those results might be sort of skewed. So like on the one hand, we want not to teach students just to operate as if their filter bubble is a picture of reality. But on the other hand, there, it's very hard to slow down the rate of data in such a way that would allow vast heterogeneity. Thank you so much. We're just about out of time, but is there anything else that either of you would like to add before we finish today? I, I guess um, the only thing I would like to add is maybe um, an impassioned plea uh, to think about the ways that adjunctification is really changing the humanities professoriate. If 76% of us are not in tenure track positions, that really changes the kind of work we can do. If our faculty are income insecure, um, then that changes the kind of work that our students can do, and it changes the investments that organizations make. Because what you have is suddenly, you know, people who are operating as free agents who can move institution to institution. And it seems to me that an ethic of care would be to make a DH funding priority, the conversion of, of, ten, of NTT lines and adjunct lines into full-time positions. I could not have said that better. I'm going to leave Kathy with that wonderful sentiment. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs>